Welcome to episode 1503 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello, Ben. We're doing a season preview podcast today, and we'll be talking about two AL teams, the two teams that connected for the Corey Kluber trade this winter, Cleveland and Texas. We'll be talking to TJ Zuppi about Cleveland in just a moment, followed by Levi Weaver on Texas. And I just noticed, although we are talking about two AL teams today, we've been very NL heavy thus far. So we are a third of the way through this preview series. We've done 10 teams and eight of them have been National League teams, which tells you something about the distribution of talent in the leagues, I think, because we've been going based on projections, starting from the middle teams and then going out to the extremes. So we've been talking about the teams that are kind of in the middle, and it just so happens that a lot of those are NL teams, and the AL is still sort of the, the league of the great teams and the terrible teams. So that has manifested itself in our preview schedule thus far. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So just like last year, where all the clear division races were in the AL and the extremely muddled and constantly shifting wildcard race was in the NL. Yes. Yeah. I think I wrote something this time last year about how the NL is the more interesting league. Now, maybe the better league, it wins an interleague now, but also just kind of a free-for-all. And that's the only other point I wanted to make here. Fangraphs posted its playoff odds, which still seems like sort of a momentous event because we have a lot of things all winter that we never used to have until spring. For instance, projections, right? We have steamer projections, at least at Fangraphs, like basically all off season, we can look at what some players are projected to do. And that always used to be a ritual of spring. We would get the projections. Now we kind of have them all the time. We have depth charts year round. A lot of this is thanks to the fine folks at Fangraphs, but we do not have playoff odds year round. Playoff odds still go away for a while and then they come back when Fangraphs folds in the Zips projection system along with the steamer ones. And then we get these combined playoff odds. And just a few things stood out to me from looking at this. One is that there is a strength of schedule rating on the playoff odds page. And the team with the strongest schedule, the best opponents, is the Orioles, which just, it seems unfair. I mean, it's not surprising. They're in the AL East. There are a bunch of other good teams there. But the fact that the Orioles, who already have the worst projected true talent, also have the hardest schedule, that just feels like piling on. Or maybe it's justified because clearly they are not really trying to win. So serves them right, I guess. But their opponents have a projected winning percentage of 515 collectively which is quite strong. So the Orioles are one of three teams to have a 0% projected chance of making the playoffs this year, along with the Mariners and the Tigers. Condolences to fans of those three teams. Orioles are going to be bad for all sorts of reasons this year. That is one thing that stood out to me. A couple others are actually related to playoff odds. So the Red Sox right now are a 50-50 shot to make the playoffs, like almost exactly. They are 50.1% likely to make the playoffs. Granted, a lot of that is wildcard odds. They only have about a 14% chance to win the division, and maybe that even sounds high to some of you, but I think the fact that they are right there, that they are almost literally 50-50, makes the Mookie trade more galling, because it'd be one thing if they were long shots, and they said, well, he's going to hit free agency, we better get something while we can. 
But the fact that they are right on the bubble, they are one of these teams that is in that sweet spot where they're projected for like something in the 80s, high 80s win total. And even though the guys they got back are pretty good, they're still costing themselves, I don't know, four or so projected wins, and they could really use those wins. So I think that is something that Red Sox fans are entitled to be angry about. All right, I'm going to very quick, you're going to, unfortunately, this is not going to be a clean experiment because you've been uh, looking at these already, but I'm going to give you uh, five quick questions, okay? Okay. San Diego Padres, Uh you have to pick either or, A or B. 20% likely to make the playoffs or 50% in your head? I know that you're looking at one of them right now, so so I'm not asking you to... I'm not literally, but in my head... Are they closer to 20 or are they closer to 50 in your head? I'd say closer to 20. Okay. Reds, are they closer to 67 or are they closer to 24? Ooh, I guess I'd say 24. Okay. Red Sox, are they closer to 28 or are they closer to 50? I think closer to 28, even though I I just said 50 is what they are projected. Oakland A's, are they closer to 28 or are they closer to 50? Huh, I guess 50. And Angels, are they closer to 46 Or are they closer to 19? 19. Okay. Well, Zips wins the Ben Lindbergh projection face-off. Three Uh to two was very close. (laughs) So the first number I read in each case was Pakoda. The second number I read was Zips. And you picked uh, Pakoda for the Padres and the Red Sox. But Uh you picked uh, Zips for the uh, A's, Reds, and Angels. Three to two, very close race. Yeah. <laughs> I had it projected. I actually had it projected going 2.7 to 2.3. So. Uh-huh. Okay. A couple other things that stood out to me on this page. The White Sox have a 27% chance to make the playoffs at Fangraphs, which uh, that sounds about right to me, but that may be disappointing to people given that they've been quite active. They're still rumored to be pursuing Asiel Puig, so they've been aggressive all winter long. We talked about that on our preview podcast, and they have a lot of players I am very excited to see, but there's a pretty good chance that that will not culminate in a playoff appearance this year and that we will get another instance of the team that wins the winter not winning the summer. I also noted that the NL East race is projected to be extremely close, which is not surprising. You'd sort of expect that. But the division odds for those teams, the Nationals on top with 35.5%, Mets at 29.9%, Braves at 28.2%. That is neck and neck and neck. And then the Phillies have a shot too. So that is really close. It's actually closer than the NL Central, although the NL Central is more of a four-team race. But with the NL Central, you've got the Cubs are leading with a 39.5% chance. So there's obviously quite a contrast here, but you've got at least two divisions where the favorite or the team that has the highest odds of winning the division is not actually the favorite versus the field, which uh, makes for an exciting division race, but also makes for kind of a, a mediocre group of teams, which Contrast with the Dodgers, who are as close to a lock as you ever see. I think they are at 97.6% chance to make the playoffs right now, 91.1% to win the division. And I assume Pakoda says even higher, or will say even higher, because Pakoda has them projected for like the highest win total that Pakoda has ever bestowed upon a team. 103 wins last time I looked. All right. And then you have the Angels down at 17.7%. Playoff odds projecting another early offseason for Mike Trout. 
All right, let's move on to our first preview segment. We are kicking things off with Cleveland, and we are joined now by TJ Zuppi, who covers Cleveland for Sports Illustrated. He has in the past for The Athletic and ESPN Cleveland, and he podcasts about the team at the Selby is Godcast. Hey, TJ, how's it going? Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. So this offseason was really all about wondering who would still be with this team when the season started and specifically whether Francisco Lindor would be. And turns out for now he is so specifically about Lindor, but just more broadly about the team as a whole. What do you see as driving this whole motivation to trade Bauer, to trade Kluber, to explore trades for Lindor? Is it cheapness? Is it justified austerity? Is it attendance? Is it the market? What exactly is contributing to this and how up in arms should fans be? Yeah, I think the majority of it is financially driven, no doubt, uh, because even uh, Terry Francona said this offseason, I'm sure the front office wasn't eagerly picking up the phone and trying to trade away all their star players over the past few years. There are reasons for it that uh, if you listen to ownership, we'll, we'll tell you that it, it, it operates more around trying to be uh, more financially responsible, if you will, or trying to get to a point where they can afford to run the team the way that they want to. And of course, it's not going over well with fans, as you can imagine. And uh, you can understand that to a certain extent. We all know that Cleveland is not going to run out with a top five payroll in baseball. And I don't think anyone here in the city really thinks that they, they need to or, or have to or are even capable of doing that. But I think the bigger issue here is a lot of fans look at this team and say, this is, this is a good team still. And yet you look at the payroll the last few years when the clock is ticking on Francisco Lindor, and it seems the more likely outcome is he's going to be playing baseball elsewhere in a few years. Why is the payroll going the opposite direction when you know this is, might be your last two shots to, to take a shot at a championship team with Lindor a part of it? To their credit, they're trying to go about this in a way of not ever having to go through that that uh, valley that you see a lot of teams have to go through. You're seeing teams in the American League Central go through that now. They want to build a sustainable contender for multiple years, have a strong farm system, and kind of have their cake and eat it too. But as you look at this team going into this year, uh, a team that still has a lot of talented players and, and probably as you're looking at a team that should be contending, you should have some good feelings towards the narrative for most of the offseason has been around a, a kind of a, a pessimistic nature. I want to talk about the payroll a little bit because I, I, Cleveland's payroll vexes me in some ways. They were, for most of this decade, they were like 60 to $70 million payroll, which is like one of the lowest. Like they were in the bottom like three-ish pretty, pretty reliably. The year that they went to the World Series, they had a payroll of $58 million. And, but, you know, 60 to 70, 60 to 80 was kind of the standard for a while. And then they, after the World Series year, they bumped it up to 95, and then they bumped it up to 112, and then they bumped it up to 123 last year. And so, you know, when they cut payroll, there's definitely a sense of, you know, anytime a team cuts payroll, it's like, wow, well, you could afford 123. Now you're cutting it, you're being cheap. And I've never quite known whether 123, whether they moved up to 123, because that was a level they were comfortable with, or whether that was a sort of a recognition of the moment they were in and the players that they had. And then, of course, there's always the underlying question of whether, you know, any team needs to put 
the restrictions on their payroll that they do, whether the point of the team is actually to to make profits or whether it's to have a good time and do this right. And so that is a long build up to the question of like, given all of that, what do you sense is the payroll that Cleveland should be shooting for? Like, what should we expect a team like Cleveland in a moment like this to be paying for players every year? Is it closer to 70? Is it closer to 120? Is it closer to 150? What should they go into the offseason aiming for? Well, I can tell you what they'll tell you the answer is. And it's a lot closer to what we're seeing uh, probably this year than where they've been at in years past. And that's kind of the the downside to spending a lot is it kind of establishes a new norm for a lot of fans. You think, well, if you're capable of doing that last year, that just must be what you're capable of doing forever now. And if you try to break off of that, of course, you're going to have a backlash of sorts. Um, and I don't blame any fan for feeling that way, um, especially like we're talking about in the case with Lindor when you know that there's only two years left on this on this clock. Yeah, I think it's difficult to truly know that because very few teams are inviting us in to, hey, sit down, take a look at these books with us and let us explain where all this money is going. And they have a, a very a vested interest in putting out a narrative that explains that, hey, we're, we're at our, our means here and this can't go much beyond this. And, and right now we're operating pretty close to breaking even or maybe coming away losing money in several years. And, and you can hear that and you can try to give them the benefit of the doubt and believe that they're being truthful, but we don't ultimately know. And your fans just don't want to hear that. So to answer your question, I think they would, they would tell you that it's closer to where they're at this year. Um, And that's been the the slow build back towards that over the past two years. But it's the timing of all of this is just, it couldn't be any worse because it's, it's between that and Lindor. And that's pretty much been the entire off season for, for really anyone looking at anything about this team. And you it, you have some other things that you could point to. You could look at a starting rotation as just kind of quite a, a bit of a pipeline for them where they're just plugging in guys left and right. They're having injuries and somehow they're able to overcome it. They do have these stars right now. You're looking at a team that you probably shouldn't have negative feelings about, but just that's been the case for much of the offseason. And where they're at this year is going to probably be like, what, like 90-ish? Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, it might grow a little bit, I suppose. And and we've seen them take on uh, some salary throughout the year. So at, at times they have left themselves a bit of flexibility at the beginning of the year in trying to plan for maybe making an upgrade somewhere throughout the year. But the downside of that is, you, you, well, you saw last year, they had so little depth. And when they had some injuries and, and guys didn't play like stars, they couldn't overcome it. And that might have been the difference in the division. Uh, or certainly a, a difference in the in trying to chase a, a, a wild card spot. With with this year going in, you you're kind of running into the same issues depth wise. So yeah, I, I you wonder if if they truly learned any lessons from last year, or if this is just going to be something that they're going to have to operate kind of in this realm now for for going forward. One of the things that has enabled that lower payroll is their success at developing pitchers who they do not have to pay a lot. So yes, they traded Bauer and they traded Kluber, but they could sell the new guys that are there and have been good for them to fans. So looking at the rotation, is that still a strength? How big a blow is the Clevenger issue? Carlos Carrasco, of course, was the Comeback Player of the Year award. He came back in an inspiring way from treatment for leukemia. Is he expected to be at full strength this year? And is the back of the rotation going to pull its weight? 
Well, it's the one thing that they've kind of hung their hat on for several years. And certainly this offseason, they haven't come out and said it, but through their actions, they're basically saying, well, look, we have all these issues offensively, but we feel really good about our starting rotation, the depth that we built and our capability to churn guys out left and right. Right. So anytime you have a blow to that, something that's supposed to be not only a strength, but something you're just counting on uh, to almost be a foregone conclusion going into the year, that the starting pitching is going to be not just good, but upper echelon in the American League, and then you suffer an injury of any sort to a star, that's not a great place to be. So it, it could become something to keep an eye on. I mean, Clevenger breaking out the way that he did and it have it be so much about some added velocity and, and the strength training and paying attention to his delivery and now having a, a knee issue, I, I worry, you know, could that be something that impacts that added velocity that he's added? Is, is that a, a case where maybe he's not quite a top 10 pitcher in the game? This year, he's going to be a little bit closer, just really good, maybe the 2018 version of Mike Clevenger. They, the Indians can't really withstand to not have their star-level talent perform like stars because, as we said, they don't have that tremendous depth. But the one thing that they do have is that depth in the rotation where it's not necessarily proven depth, but there's just a lot of guys that are really interesting or intriguing, and they have such a track record of taking guys that you don't think much of and getting so much out of them. You look at Aaron Savali last year, he was on nobody's radar. He came up and, and pitched tremendously. I don't know if that's going to continue at the same level as it did last year, but that was somebody that wasn't even supposed to be really in the plans for the next few years. And now you're counting on him potentially to be in the rotation. Uh, Zach Plesak, kind of the same thing. And he even said he added some, some miles per hour to his fastball working out with Mike Clevenger in the offseason. So that's another guy that's like, okay, well, that's kind of an interesting arm, even if the the peripherals didn't match the, the exact performance on the field. As far as Carrasco goes, they're going to need him to be the Carrasco of old for sure. Cause you do have this, this Clevenger thing hanging over it. And even if it's only three or four starts, it's something to keep an eye on throughout the year. Shane Bieber looks like a guy that is just a, a steady performer because he throws so many strikes and to his credit, he finds ways to get better. But Carrasco is kind of the guy that, he can hold the rest of this together because you do have young guys, but they're all unproven. You don't know exactly what to expect from him. Carrasco could be, uh, I mean, I've seen him on some, some dark horse Cy Young candidate lists and, and he certainly has that sort of ability, but God, go into the year and you're, you're having a guy that had to battle leukemia last year to even get anything out of him was absolutely incredible and uh, quite a heartwarming tale in it, in itself. So they're putting a lot on him to be able to, to be able to be that kind of top of the rotation guy still in this rotation to go along with Clevenger and Bieber. And if they get that, then this rotation will be just fine. There'll be no issues and they'll probably be among the best in the American league, but there's a lot of volatility there. Uh, now that you've added some, some injury issues with, with Clevenger, he already had some, some problems last year, giving you 200 innings. And then of course, which is so much unproven young talent that looks intriguing, but you don't know exactly what it is at this point. Yeah, so they traded Bauer last year just a few days after he fired a ball over the outfield fence when he was pulled from the game. Do you think that was a precipitating incident? Do you think, okay, they thought, okay, that's it, that's the last straw, this is too much of a distraction? And do you think that when he was traded, most players in the clubhouse were happy not to have him around anymore? Or does the fact that some pitchers like Shane Bieber and Mike Clevenger have credited him for part of their improvements and changing their training methods is that a loss to some extent too and and i guess how much of the trade was well we know he's going to insist on hitting free agency 
and we're not going to have him that long. And also, well, it's going to make us better in the short term. We're going to get big league ready guys back right now. And how much of it was just not wanting to be in the Trevor Bauer business anymore? <laughs> well, this this will surprise absolutely nobody. But Trevor Bauer is a complicated topic. It, it could never be filtered into a nice, easy kind of black and white, right or wrong kind of issue because it's it's just it's not that with him. He is somebody that yeah, did he annoy him at times? Absolutely. Whether were the times where he just caused way too many headaches than, than probably you'd like to deal with on a daily basis. Absolutely. But he was also someone that was supremely talented. As you mentioned, he had grown into more of a, a leadership role over the past few years as, as guys are, are gravitating to him. And credit to him, he's willing to share what knowledge he has and, and is eager to learn and, and try to pass that along to everybody else. And it did make a difference. I mean, part of the, the Clevenger breakout in 2018 came back to Trevor Bauer and Mike Clevenger having conversations in the dugout and, and Trev basically saying, you're leaving Miles Brower on the table by the way you throw. And them sitting down and, and, and outside of just even the coaches, them sitting down and, and working out a plan and Clevenger kind of taking that and running with it. So uh, that's part of the non-quantifiable portion of this. I think not having someone like him in the clubhouse can be well, especially when you have a lot of young pitchers, it can be something that maybe does take away from the intangible element of this. But there is also that that side that you're talking about with his service time, where it was at, you know, how long they were going to control him, knowing that they're not going to sign him to a long-term deal. There's questions about whether or not he'd even do that with any team. And if he's going year to year and making tons of money, that, that's not the sort of business that the Indians are looking to be in. I, I think they were able to make a good baseball trade more than anything in, in what they did last year, knowing that they could probably get by without Bauer being part of the rotation, but the offense absolutely needed the upgrades that they got, not just in 2019, but now and beyond with Fran Mel Reyes still here. So that's still a trade that pays dividends for them. So I think it, it, it kind of checked a lot of different boxes where, yeah, it was the, the throwing the ball over the center field thing, a, a last straw. I don't think it really comes down to it that sort of way, but it was part of probably something that they had to consider whether or not this is a guy that they want to pay a lot of money to over a long period of time. And, and once they realize, okay, it's probably going to be a case where he's going elsewhere in a few years, let's try to cash in and try to fix part of our roster right now. And, and I think they were able to, in the trade that they made, accomplish what they were seeking to do. One of my favorite breakouts from last year, maybe my favorite breakout last year was Roberto Perez, the catcher who hit like many more home runs than we, we thought he was capable of and was a league average hitter. But what really made him valuable was that he was an extraordinary defensive catcher, just like I think we mentioned on, on here a few months ago that he was, I think, ranked first in the league in throwing runs saved at baseball prospectus, first in pass ball and wild pitches saved, runs saved, and then I think second or something in framing runs. And in particular, he, he had no pass balls, which feels to me like if I were running a team by September, the whole crowd would be chanting, catch that pitch on every pitch to try to keep that like record chase going. Like, just imagine every pitch, catch that pitch. All right. Anyway, Roberto Perez, 30 years old. I mean, you know, in the organization for more than a decade, very un, uh, unaccomplished before last year. Seems to me like a perfect folk hero. People love their catchers. Is there a real recognition in Cleveland of just how good he is defensively? Is that something that is really highlighted or is it a little under the radar and am in fact am i the one who's making too much of it right now <laughs> no i don't think the defense flies under the radar whatsoever because we hit fans over the head with that fact for years they were screaming to designate this guy for assignment because he couldn't hit and it's like well hold on 
You look at the defensive numbers, he's really, really good. And I know he doesn't get as much playing time as Jan Gomes in most years, but trust me, this guy brings value. And it took some time to kind of win some people over, and it also took him having the offensive breakout for everyone to kind of join you on your side of the the rah-rah fence. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, watching him break out last year was, especially earlier, there wasn't a lot of fun things to watch. I mean, this is a team that had Carlos Gonzalez hitting cleanup one day, and the next day he was DFA'd. But Roberto Perez was fun to, to watch that breakout. It was a guy that obviously had the defensive value and, and skill, but you always question whether or not he could hit enough to, to warrant being a starting catcher. And the Indians believe that there was more in there than he had ever shown. He's a guy that always has had a pretty good eye at the plate. So at least if nothing else, you figured he'd get on base a little bit at the bottom of the lineup and then he would handle pitching staff really well. The, the power was a testament to I mean, just a, an unforeseen breakout that never could have really forecasted, but he got a little bit more aggressive, got into a stroke to right center field that really worked well for him. And I think once that confidence started to build and he saw, okay, I can knock some balls over the fence. I don't have to just be a guy that takes, you know, three pitches to begin the at bat because I'm just a, a, a guy up here with that's looking to walk. I can do some damage myself. And part of it was mentality. Part of it was probably just getting in there every day and playing. And then he also, He's a guy that had to have some surgery after the year. He's banged up. He's playing as much as he did. And that, to me, is even a bigger credit to him that, that he's banged up, that he is catching pretty much every single day for the Indians, and he doesn't let one ball go to the backstop that's his fault. That's incredible. Um, and he took a lot of pride in that. He's always been a prideful guy in his defense, something that comes first for him. It's never been a question. Even when he's gone through some offensive struggles, he's kind of fallen back on, okay, I just got to go out there and help the pitcher. And if I'm doing that, I'm doing my job. And he certainly did that a lot last year. I think the only disappointment for him is that he didn't get the, the big platinum glove or whatever it's called. He was really shooting for that. He's kind of disappointed that it didn't end up coming to him. But uh, I think he was very happy and, and maybe humbled to see everyone kind of recognize him for the defensive value that he brought. And it, it was uh, upper echelon, if just not the best in baseball last year. So the outfield was an issue last year, particularly early in the year. That's part of why they made the trade for Bauer that they did and got the return that they did. They're going into this year with a group that includes some holdovers. You've got Oscar Mercado around there. You've got Delano DeShields. You've got Jordan Luplo. You've got Domingo Santana in the mix now. And Franmil Reyes is maybe slated for DH duty. I don't know. And then there's Greg Allen. I mean, it's not an inspiring group necessarily. So <laughs> is it better than what they went into 2019 with? Or are we going to be saying exactly the same thing that we were saying a year ago? Yeah, yeah I feel like it's like 2020. We're still talking about the Indians outfield. Yeah. This still hasn't been remedied. I mean, and Imagine where they'd be if Oscar, if Oscar Mercado hadn't really, I yeah. won't say broken out. I don't know if it's quite to that level, but I mean, he settled into a, being a really nice player in center field. And there's a guy that, that looked like he could play a role of some sort on a major league team, but I don't know if, if anyone penciled in everyday outfielder, um, at least initially. And, and he was pretty good in, in handling center field and he's plugged in there to at least be an everyday guy at this point but the the rest of the, the rest of the mix you ran through the list they have a lot of them they got jake bowers there who's looking to prove himself and it's like okay well there's a lot of them and i hope you can get one answer out of that but i i don't know it's it's such a a question mark still going into this year um, adding domingo santana i would think with the way that this is set up Fran mill reyes lost he said 18 pounds this winter to give himself a legitimate shot to go play corner outfield and the Indians are going to give him every opportunity to do that this spring. 
We know the, the metrics haven't been too kind to him in that regard defensively. Um, someone that, that certainly down the road looks like he's an everyday DH, but he's also still young, and the Indians want to give him a shot in the outfield, and they think their best alignment could be with him playing maybe right field. So he'll be out there pretty much every day this spring to see how that goes. And credit to him, he put in the work to at least give it a legitimate opportunity. And if that's the case, then it'll probably be Domingo Santana at DH. I don't envision an outfield with Santana and Reyes in the corners. Uh, that's asking a lot of Oscar Mercado, whoever else is playing center field. But I also think they looked at this and said, okay, how do we, we shoehorn in a, a little additional offense? And, and Santana, for whatever you want to make of his defensive value, which was just weird when I looked back through and saw, hey, he was actually a good defensive outfielder a couple of years ago. That just slipped my mind. But for the most part, you don't envision him being anything other than just a, a guy that brings offensive value. And they didn't have a lot of, of surefire ways to kind of raise their floor. And I think that's what what Santana does. You could probably, if, if he's healthy, you feel good about him being at least a little bit above league average bat. And if he's that, then that's better than what they had. And going into this, this, uh, the spring training, if they didn't do anything to add to the outfield with some of the guys that were still left out there, that would have been really head scratching. So now they put themselves in a position where as long as one of those guys can handle right field and you feel like you have center field pretty well locked down, you're going to hope that you can find an answer with the other eight, nine guys, whatever it is, that somebody can, can go out and play left field, whether it's Jordan Luplo getting an opportunity against righties. I mean, he just demolished left-handers last year, uh, was among the, the best in the league in doing that, and he was so good at it that they might give him an opportunity to be more of an everyday player. Okay, so we'll see. Then you got Bowers, who has worked on his swing again throughout the offseason, feels more confident, but that's also something he – was saying at, uh, at this point last year, too. So you're never quite sure what to believe in spring training. If they've got a lot of bodies, and they're going to give a lot of opportunities to guys to see what sticks. But at this point, it's, it is clearly the, the weakest part of this roster as far as just knowing what to expect. The decision to trade Corey Kluber was, of course, a, you know, already one that would be controversial. But then you saw the return, which was, you know, a, a young relief prospect basically a good one but a young relief prospect and you know a fourth outfielder well i've just i've just leaned on the scales way too much i didn't mean to have that tone in my voice what is generally speaking the reaction to that to that move and and is there more anger about the decision to trade kluber given the return than there was before when he was merely being shopped or did it give that whole thing a sense of closure at least so that now uh, it's not like the Lindor situation where, for instance, you have to watch them continually being open to trading one of their most popular and best players. I think I'll give some credit to fans. They at least can see if you're if you're making a good baseball train, then you, you can maybe live with it a little bit more. You can survive through it a little bit better, knowing the, that you know Kluber makes what he makes and the roster and the financials are what they are. If you at least bring back something that you feel really good about, you can probably get over it. And I think that the Bauer trade is sort of evidence of that. But when they, when, when the talk was initially out there, you kind of went back to what all of the discussion was last year with Kluber. And you kind of set the bar that high for what the return should look like for a two time Cy Young award winner, one of the best pitchers in your organization's history. And then you see what they got. Of course, you're going to say, Alano to Shields, so that's, I mean, he's a fine defensive player, really good defensive player, really good base runner, brings you nothing with the bat. Okay, well, Emmanuel Classe, he's a reliever. That, it, it really left a, a kind of a disconnect for a lot of people. And I, and I think 
I've kind of maintained this all along. I think two things can be true about this trade. One, you can be underwhelmed with the return. Absolutely. Considering what Corey Kluber is and, and he's, I would think the Indians are probably a better team with Kluber on the, on the roster in 2020 than without him on the roster, uh, given the return. So that's one thing. But the second thing is you can still look at Emmanuel Classe and go, wow, this guy looks like a really valuable bullpen piece in a, a place where the game has changed, where they can't match up like they like to. You know, Terry Francona has moaned all offseason about the three batter rule. So they went out and they got Classe, they've got James Karinchek, they've got Brad Hand. They're going to try to go about the bullpen a little bit differently. And just looking at some of the numbers, it's like, okay, you've got a, a youngster here who you can mold, who throws 101 mile per hour cutters. That's exciting. So I think, and, and, and probably most fans are able to separate this a little bit. I think you can be underwhelmed and also excited at the same time. And that's kind of the, the way a lot of people look at this Kluber trade now. I want to ask you about another hard-throwing right-handed reliever. Maybe doesn't throw quite as hard, but unlike Class A, he gets strikeouts in droves. I want to ask about James Karinchak. I'm really interested in what his season will look like. His minor league numbers were just off the charts. The strikeout rates were incredible. So is there any doubt that that will carry over to the majors? Is it one of those cases where you think, oh, this works in AAA, but it won't work as well in the majors? Or is he basically right away going to be one of the best strikeout relievers in baseball? Yes. Huge question. They could really benefit from having, a, if, if they have first half Brad Hand, Classe, and Karinchek in the back half of their bullpen, then it really transforms that to maybe being one of the f- most fun and maybe talented groups on the roster. But it, it still is a question mark. You can look at the, the strikeouts as he rises each part through the system, and you can look at you know, what his fastball does, and you can look at the rise and how he throws it, and, and being a guy that, that likes to utilize it in the upper top third and out of the zone and likes to bury the breaking ball and the, the way that he throws it too, a little bit more over the top. So it's a little bit more unconventional compared to what hitters are seeing. So there's a lot to like there, but it is, you're still talking about uh, a relief prospect if those sorts of things exist and a guy that is doing something that can be very volatile, level to level year to year. Uh, but they're certainly counting on him. Like I said, with, with a lot of the changes now, with the three batter rule kind of outlawing how they're going to, how they've used Adam Simber and Oliver Perez throughout the past couple of years. They've got to look for guys that can give them full innings and Karen check, Classe, and Brad hand. If, if that ends up working out for them, then they're going to be real happy. But again, we're still talking about someone that is unproven, uh, but there's certainly a lot to like. And I know there was, you know, reports of him throwing in, in, uh, out in Goodyear in spring training, a lot of hitters <laughs> already befuddled by what they're seeing. He throws the fastball pretty much everywhere. Um, and he has had some command issues, but I'm I'm really excited to watch that part of this roster because it might be awful on some nights. There might be some implosions, but I think you're also going to see a lot of uh, incredible pitching gifts, and there will be many many videos worth watching of of, <laughs> of Karen Check and Classe trying to get through seventh and eighth innings in Cleveland. Speaking of great at times and terrible at times, Jose Ramirez, I think his season <laughs> was discussed endlessly last year and. There were some good theories developed about why he had gotten all fouled up and how he got himself back on track. And then, of course, he got hurt and we weren't able to see him demonstrate that he really was back to his old self for that long a time. But should we believe is is the 
bounce back that he did have before he got hurt enough for us to say, okay, he's back, he's the MVP caliber Jose Ramirez again, or are we going into the season with still some doubts about that? Yeah, about halfway through the year, I proclaimed that I am out of the Jose Ramirez prediction business because <laughs> I would sit there and you'd look for encouraging signs, right? Something that you could kind of sink your teeth into and say, okay, the old Jose Ramirez is coming back. And, and anytime you think you found something, it didn't last. And it, it got to be really confounding because you could, you could see through some of the metrics, there weren't a ton of differences outside of him pulling the ball a little bit less. And that became fun because he had old school guys screaming at their TVs and their Twitters. He's, you got to stop trying to pull everything. And, and there's some of us going, maybe you should be looking to pull more. You should be right. looking to be more authoritative at the plate. Um, but I think we saw enough down the stretch before the injury took him out of action completely that I feel pretty good about the old Jose Ramirez returning. It, it just never seemed right that a guy, I, mean, I guess you, you've seen it a little bit in the past where guys just completely fallen off. I mean, the Indians had a second baseman a few years ago in Carlos Bayerga that something similar sort of happened in his career, though he was never quite Jose Ramirez. It just, it could not, I could not figure out a path in which he goes from being superstar MVP candidate to one of the worst hitters in baseball and that just making sense. It just, it couldn't make sense. We had had enough of a sample size to see that he's truly a great hitter. I think as long as he's just doing the same things that have made him special in the past, I don't see any reason why he can't just be, again, the same star-level talent that we've, we've seen for so long here in Cleveland. Yeah, the interesting theory, which I think maybe his agent mentioned, was that he had gotten the shift in his head and he was trying to get around the shift and so he had gotten away from how he was succeeding, which was weird because clearly the shift wasn't holding him back all that much because he was really great, <laughs> yeah. so why change anything? But yeah, then he, he did change things and he got good again, so <laughs> that will be as interesting to see as Karen Check, I think. All right, so give us a prediction. We end by asking our guests for a win total prediction. So how many games do you foresee Cleveland winning in 2020? Yeah, I don't know why everyone's so scared of this. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm I'm wrong enough as it is. I don't, I don't really care if I get one more thing wrong. <laughs> I've felt pretty strongly about uh, 90 being a good number for this team. I, I, I thought with the, the Donaldson signing by, by Minnesota that – firmly put them ahead of what could have been kind of a pick between these two teams going into the year. So I'm looking at probably a three or four game gap between them and the twins. And I think 90 feels good right between the twins and the white Sox who are coming and look really fun, but I don't quite think they're, they're ready to make that jump yet. So I think 90 is a good spot. All right. You can follow TJ on Twitter at TJ Zuby. You can read him at sports illustrated. Now. Thank you very much, TJ. No problem. fellas. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment with Levi Weaver to talk about the Texas Rangers. All right, we are back, and we're talking about the Texas Rangers now with Levi Weaver, who covers the Rangers and podcasts about the Rangers for the Athletic DFW, and usually joins us for these previews. Hey, Levi, welcome back. I am happy to be back, guys. I just am glad you keep picking me when Evan Grant is completely available, <laughs> and you could have had him, but you chose me. So thank you. Yeah, he turns us down every year. <laughs> what a jerk. Yeah. 
So I was just reading the Rangers essay in the Baseball Prospectus Annual, which is by Zach Kreiser, and he makes the point that the Rangers have seemingly done a decent job of acquiring talent over the last several years, but maybe have not done the best job of developing it in every case. And he breaks down the numbers that the Rangers got 1.5 wins above replacement player from players that they developed, according to his classification, and 16.1 wins above replacement from players they acquired. So a lot of good jobs with acquiring players, not so great with developing players. And I know that's an area they've invested in, and they've also had some sort of false starts, like they had a player development director who didn't even last a year for them, right, last year. So yeah. what's going yeah, on in the, the player development front, and, and I guess what happened with uh, Matt Blood, who was that guy who came and went and is with the Orioles now? Yeah, I, I think that they have, they definitely recognized and, and pretty openly admitted a little over a year ago, or I guess maybe even more than that, that that is a, an area that they felt that they had been deficient in. And it, it's funny because for a long time, you would see the Rangers at the top of all these prospect lists. You had your, you know, Jerickson Profar and Joey Gallo and Nomar Mazzara and all of these, especially in Latin America, probably when, when AJ Preller was in Texas, they were kind of at the forefront of it. And then, I mean, like a lot of things in life, when you're really successful at something, you don't really see the need to change and all of a sudden they kind of looked up and the rest of the the league had passed them by and so you're right they they have invested a lot there's been a lot of turnover in player development and I do think it's going to take a few years for that to start to show up with Matt I think it was just a matter of a bad fit and you know John Daniels is the the only time I've really ever been on his bad side is when I start to take a critical look at some of his front office guys. He's very protective of them. And so I don't think we're ever going to get a full story from him on why exactly Matt didn't work out. But John's explanation for it was that he basically took one guy and said, hey, handle this. And um, he said maybe he thought that he probably put too much on his plate. And he said blood to his credit did go in and start making changes and saying, here's how it's going to be. We're going to do this, 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 and this. And kind of a lot of guys that had been in the organization for a while maybe weren't quite ready for that much change at one time and you know who's this new guy coming in saying all these things to us and i mean i'm I'm speculating now i have transferred from john daniel's thoughts to my own somewhere in the middle of that sentence i did feel like there was maybe some resistance there and and um so maybe just was not the right fit for the job and to the rangers credit they acknowledged the mistake and tried to fix it and it will be really interesting to see how that development process goes over the next few years as they continue to refine and add and replace pieces in the in the front office. So last year, a little bit more than a third of the innings went to pitchers who had ERAs over 5.75. Um, yeah, which the is, Shelby Miller years. <laughs> yeah, I think he, I, I counted him triple. Every one of his innings, I counted triple because they bled over. But I mean, that's a lot of innings going to sub-replacement. Now, technically, because of the the ballpark factor and all that, not all of those were actually sub-replacement. But even if you just look at sub-replacement innings, about a quarter of them went to that, which on the one hand, if you're looking at you know the off-season plan, it's very easy to identify places where you can make big improvements. And so they invested in more reliable starting pitchers that will absorb many of those innings. And maybe that's a great turnaround. But I'm wondering if uh, you if those 500 or so innings were more a reflection of, you know, a, a gamble that didn't pay off where they got a bunch of these like TJ survivors or a plan that was not well thought out or that lack of depth because the organization has not been able to produce, you know, depth and, and talent from within for a long time. And it left them sort of very bare. 
Yeah, I think it was probably more the first. I think it was a gamble that didn't pay off because you have to remember, like Lance Lynn was kind of a gamble. He had a not a great first half of the season before with the Twins, and then went to the Yankees. And wait, am I getting that in the right order? He he was bad with one and good with the other. He was, uh, bad, he was good yeah. this, bad with the Twins, good with the Yankees, but like, yeah, as a reliever, right? I think maybe he did eventually pitch some innings out of the bullpen, but anyway, he was he was kind of a gamble, and and he paid off. Mike Miner was another one of those guys that was coming off of injury, and he was a reliever for sure uh, with Kansas City. And Texas was one of the few teams that gave him an opportunity to start. So those two guys were gambles that did work out, and then guys like Drew Smiley, you know, even going back to Doug Fister, you look at Shelby Miller, Edinson Volquez, those are guys that it didn't work, and so I think that is probably part of what you saw this year where they were like, let's not do that again. And part of that was that they were not, they were never really in a position last year where they thought they were going to contend in 2019. And so they had the kind of the leeway to take some more of those gambles. And, um, this year, I think with the new stadium, they're wanting to be a bit more competitive. And so there was less room for risk as far as those acquisitions went. As far as depth goes, I I think I'm really interested to watch the rotation in AAA this year. You've got Joe Palumbo, Colby Allard are the two primary ones. Taylor Hearn, if he comes back from his injury last year. And then, I mean, who knows what Ariel Jurado is going to be. Johan Mendez. It starts to fall off a little bit after that. But but there is some depth now that they think is going to be good near the end of this year or going into next year. So, yeah, I, I think it was just more that they had the leeway to gamble and it didn't work out on, on those other non-Mike Minor or Lance Lynn occasions. Lynn, by the way, his first outing as a Yankee and his last outing as a Yankee were in relief and all the others were starting. So you can either take that to mean that I have a very full picture of his entire stint with the Yankees (laughs) or you can just forget I said it. I want to ask about Lynn and Miner because so Lynn and Miner were basically like if you look at baseball reverence war or if you look at Fangraphs war, they were like two of the four best pitchers in the American League last year by war. And you could make the case that a Cy Young voter could have justified putting either one of them over the Astros two pitchers, if depending on which site they were at. And, you know, there are always years where like players who are pretty good have amazing seasons. And we know that that doesn't necessarily reflect their true talent level and that they will regress or, or whatever, that that was like their career year. But I feel like with Lynn and Minor, it's sort of a different challenge because I feel like there's not broad acceptance that they were even actually that good last year that that there just has to be something janky going on with either like the fit to runs allowed adjustment uh you know translation or with the park adjustment or with something that like there's no way that Lance Lynn and Mike Miner were actually as good as Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole last year I think that would be the broad consensus if you polled people who watched like baseball a little bit and so you watched the Rangers a lot is it true that Lance Lynn and Mike Miner were roughly at the level of Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole last year? Can you accept that as a true fact? There is some cognitive dissonance there. You're right. But but watching them pitch, they were really good. And for Lynn, I think it was really interesting because he did not get off to a strong start in Texas. He's always been kind of a fastball first and second, third, fourth, and fifth guy. And uh, the the team really had to sit him down and go, look, you're you're going to do better if you use your secondary pitches more. And then in addition to your two seam fastball, let's give you a four seam fastball, and let's work with both of those. And so his ability to change his pitch selection and his sequencing was really, I think, the key to him being successful last year. So 
I do think he was that good. Miner had a couple of blips where he wasn't great. He said he had some mechanical issues. And it was whenever the team was in Milwaukee, he was talking about he finally had it figured out that he was maybe a little sore or a little banged up. And so he was over-rotating with his hips and trying to just really hurl the ball in there. And he needed to be more controlled and more poised. So, you know, I will hear it from those guys and from their manager and from their GM. So I will get an optimistic just by virtue of that's who I'm hearing. I'm going to probably believe a more optimistic truth there, but it's not, I mean, they were, they were on that level. I mean, they, they really were impressive. And both of those guys had over 200 strikeouts minors, maybe with an asterisk, depending on if you believe Pete Abraham or not, but um, neither of them were as good as Garrett Cole. Let's, let's not get crazy here. But you could make the argument that either of them were maybe better than Verlander last year, or at least on the same level. Yeah, so as Sam noted, there was a lot of activity early in the offseason. The Rangers sort of rebuilt that rotation and brought in Jordan Lyles and Kyle Gibson and then traded for Corey Kluber. And then the offseason sort of petered out. And you wrote about this last month, I think, that there just didn't seem to be the same momentum there. So was that a result of the plan? Did the Rangers just go get the guys they wanted? And then they said, okay, we're done. Or because they were rumored to be interested in other guys, were they interested in spending or acquiring more? And that just didn't work out. I, I think the latter. They, I, I got the sense that they were really disappointed in how things played out with the Anthony Rendon negotiations. We didn't hear this directly from the GM, but a couple of sources told me that they basically made their first pitch and thought that they were making an opening offer. And then that was the last conversation that they had and didn't get a chance to match. And I kind of think they, I get the sense that they would have matched on Rendon at third base. And so as they then sort of pivoted to, all right, is Nolan Arenado available? Is Chris Bryant available after this whole thing plays out? We need to know how many years of control we're getting, but what's the price there? And then I just, I kind of get the sense that the price was too high. And so they just decided, well, let's go with Todd Frazier for now. And then let's see if the price changes in May, June, or July. And what I, I think that kind of gives them the opportunity to see there, there are so many question marks in the offense right now. You know, is Ronald Guzman, Rugnet Odor, Elvis Andrews, all three of those guys had down years last year. Are they going to be able to kind of come back in 2020 to be more of what the team expects them to be? Joey Gallo, can he do what he did in the first half for a full season? Can Willie Calhoun, this is going to be his first full season in the big leagues, how is that going to look? Is is Shin Su Chu going to age gracefully? Is Robinson Chirinos going to age gracefully? Was that a career year for Danny Santana or is that just who he is now? Where is Nick Solak going to play? Like literally every position on the field there's a question mark. And so it gives the team a chance to go, hey, go out and prove it. If you can be in contention in June and July with the lineup that we've got, if all of those question marks or at least a good number of those question marks can be answered with a positive answer, then John Daniels does have a good track record of the team's in contention. Let's go get somebody and he will pay the, the necessary price. But I kind of can see the the strategy that goes, why would I go out and overpay for Arenado right now when we don't know if he's going to opt out after two years? Why would we overpay for a year of Chris Bryant and then come out and fall flat on our faces? And then we've set ourselves back on some of this development and some of these young guys that we really think are going to be something. So I do think it is, again, another gamble that, hey, if the team is good, then we'll go we'll go pick somebody up. But if they're not, there's no sense in making that acquisition and, and further depleting a farm system that we really have worked hard to to build up over the last few years. So that I kind of think is where they are right now. Yeah, it was sort of surprising that they came out of the gate so fast and that they were so aggressive because it didn't seem like they were particularly close to being 
a contender or, or at least a, a favorite. And so I wondered why they had picked this offseason to start making moves. And do you think that is a product of the ballpark, which was one theory that new ballpark, you want to put a competitive, entertaining team on the field? Or do they think they are closer to being good than maybe the projections say? Or just organizationally, are they averse to not contending, not competing, not at least trying to sign some veterans and make a go of it? I think you've identified all three. (laughs) I think they're all three factors. (laughs) We've talked to the front office in the past about rebuilds, and you see organizations like, I mean, like Houston did. They were sort of the, the blueprint for this new wave of tanking and you see what Baltimore is doing right now and and teams like that. I think they hate that and don't ever want to just be a terrible, awful team. And honestly, I don't know that they've got the cachet in a... Oh, jeez. Sorry, stadium music just started. I'll try and cover up the microphone a little bit. Uh, I don't necessarily think they've got the cachet in a football town to endure years and years of being really, really terrible. And so I think they kind of have to stay somewhat relevant. Question, is that music too loud? I find it charming. It's, I mean, it, it adds color, right? <laughs> we know that you're, pretty, you're definitely in the press box loud. at spring training right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm like, I'm sitting outside because the press box Wi-Fi is awful and the media room has other people in it that I don't want to annoy. So I literally have like, I'm wearing a hoodie and my, I'm like stretching the hood over the microphone right now, trying to guard it from the music. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> Once we did an episode with somebody who was in a Tokyo diner. Yes. And that was much, oh, wow. much louder. Yes. Okay. Okay, well, I'll just try and keep this blocked as much as possible and okay. try and get through it. So back to the uh, you know the early movement in the offseason as opposed to the, the late movement. And I'm going to stray a little bit here. I, I was thinking about the Corey Kluber trade, which seems like a, a, particularly for what they gave up is a good move. And you could probably justify every team in baseball making that move. But you could also, I mean, it, Kluber seems to me to make a lot more sense right now to a team that is is likely to make the playoffs because he's boomer bust. If he if he's success, then you've got your, you know, a playoff ace. And if he doesn't, then, you know, that's sort of baked into the risk. And the Rangers, like if if Corey Kluber is Corey Kluber the Cy Young again, it probably pushes them to like 81 wins. It probably doesn't make them a playoff team, let alone, you know, land him in the postseason. And so it's sort of odd that that's where he landed, it seems to me. But but I wonder how much that move and also the, the earlier moves to get Gibson in particular were based on the assumption that they or the optimism that they were going to land Rendon or somebody else. If they had known that they were going to not land Rendon or somebody else. Do you think that they would have done anything differently at the beginning? Was was that were the early moves kind of based on an assumption that the rest of the offseason was going to go in a different way? And do you think there's any regret there at all? I don't know that there's regret, but I do think you're onto something there. That if they had known that they weren't going to end up with, not I mean, not that Todd Frazier is like a scrub at third base, but he's getting older and he's probably way more effective against left-handed pitching than right-handed these days. If they had known that's how it was going to play out, yeah, yeah, maybe they would have been a bit more um, reticent to, to go out and just jump all over the, the market early. But also, I think those are guys that they think are maybe going to be two- to three-year guys, and so when they are contending, whether that's this year or next or next, that maybe those are guys that either can still be here or that they can flip for pieces that will help them in those years. So I don't know that there's necessarily regret, but I, I do absolutely think that that was all part of sort of one plan. And, and there's always in front offices a plan B and plan C and, you know, contingencies for contingencies. So I don't think it was, I don't think this was something that they 
didn't have a plan for. But I certainly think that, yeah, I mean, going after Rendon, that was, he was their primary target this year and they didn't get him. Daniels is the longest tenured GM other than Billy Bean and Brian Cashman at this point, I guess, unless you count Kenny Williams, who's still involved with the White Sox. And so is he in that sort of situation that Bean and Cashman are in where they're almost the faces of the organization and it seems like they will outlast everyone if they want to, that their jobs are essentially lifetime appointments now? Or is he still under some pressure to win and might he have been reluctant to do a tearbound and rebuild because uh, he might have had trouble lasting? So I, I guess how secure is his position and and is that based on just the past successes or great relationship with ownership? Yeah, I mean, I think taking the team to their first two World Series champion, or not championships, geez, that would have been nice. Uh, their first two World Series appearances does give him a little bit of leeway. And I, I get the sense that ownership has faith in him. But I also don't think it's like you're saying with, with maybe Cashman or Bean. I, I do think that there is a scenario where this new, not a full tank, but quasi rebuild doesn't work out. And a lot of these new player development tactics three years down the road turn out to be a bust. And, I, you know, I, I don't think his I don't think he's on the hot seat this year. But if if they look a few years down the road and go, hey, you went through this process and it didn't work. And now we're in the, we're mired in mediocrity for the 10th straight year. Then at that point, yeah, I mean, I think he's as vulnerable as anyone to being replaced. There's going to be a new ballpark that opens this year, of course. And the old ballpark was such a kind of consistent character in Texas baseball. Like for 26 years, we we knew that the ball was going to fly. It was, um, you know, the course field of the American League. And uh, that had some some effects, I, I would assume, on on team building, on the ability to get through a year with a certain roster. Do you know if if there was any attempt in the design and construction of the park to change the way that baseball is played in Texas, whether there were, were attempts to make it more moderate. And do you know if there's been any kind of in-depth look, either by the team or by people, um, you know, writers around the team, to estimate what it's going to look like on March 30th and, and how baseball is, is going to be this year? Yeah, they, so they've, they've, the designers told us that they have tried to make it play as fair as possible, as close to not being a pitcher's park or a hitter's park as possible. And they've done you know, models and computer models and run things through like miniature models with wind tunnels and all of this, but without fail, they always end that with, but we just won't know until we play in it. And you you can predict and you can put all the math to it that you want, but until you put it into practice, there's really no, no way to know for sure exactly how it's going to play. So that is an interesting question. And it's one that I will be uh, watching throughout the year to see how those park factors play. But I I just don't, I don't think that there is a any way to accurately predict it unless they you know like if they intentionally put a, a, a industrial sized fan behind home plate try like try to make the ball fly out well, okay but until we find out i just don't think we're gonna know let's just say hypothetically that it, it plays exactly neutrally and that it is your average ballpark and no longer a, a bandbox. is mm-hmm. there anybody on the roster or are there many people on the roster or does the whole team do you think um face consequences from that are there players who you think would be affected more players who you think maybe i mean if if this were coors field if they replaced coors field with you know a neutral park i think there'd be a lot of thought about oh well which players is that going to affect the most yeah who's who's you know whose style of play was most suited to coors field and and um on defense and on offense and in pitching is there equivalent effect in texas 
Yeah, so the ball flew out pretty well to right field in Texas. And so you start looking at left-handed hitters with power. And I think Joey Gallo probably supersedes all of that. He is able to hit the ball out of any ballpark at any time. Maybe Rugnet Odor, because a lot of his struggles in the past, I mean, he's not hitting for great average or on base percentage, but yeah, he'll still hit 30 home runs. If that goes down to 20 and he's still not hitting for great average, and and if those you know 10 of those home runs turn into outs instead of home runs, he might be somebody who is victimized a little bit by it. Ronald Guzman, who doesn't have extremely good power anyway, was probably benefited a little bit. So he's he's probably another one. And it's, I think any left-handed hitter who kind of relies on marginal power is probably going to be affected a little bit if it if it plays exactly fair. I think a lot of people wondered why do the Rangers need a new ballpark and also criticize the public funding aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Do you think there was a real need for it? I mean, being in Texas covering this team in the heat, there will be air conditioning, there will be a retractable roof. Is that a bigger deal than people are giving it credit for? Is that alone yeah. a worthy justification for a new park? Yeah, and so let me preface this by saying I also had issues with the public funding aspect of it. I think that's an absolute ripoff that is just unconscionable, and there's just no excuse for it. But the real mistake here was made when they made the old ballpark without a roof. It's not like it was a surprise that it was going to be 105 degrees in July in in Texas, and there were it was dangerous. I mean, there were I remember games where it was 108 degrees at first pitch. And then the temperature on the field in the bowl was like 121 degrees. And so you're putting fan safety at risk. You're putting beer safety at risk. It was, uh, we had Emily Jones, my co-host on, uh, on our podcast. She's the sideline reporter for the Rangers. And they have this, I guess, for cooking. You can point this thing at something and it tells you how hot it is. And she pointed it at one of the chairs on the front row before that 108 degree game and it was 147 degrees on the seat (laughs) and so you're you're like you're cooking yourself you're basically slow cooking yourself if you sit there and for anybody over the age of 55 it's a danger for kids it's a danger you basically have to drink water all the way through you're you're cooking it's really unenjoyable and it's super not safe and so they should have put a roof on the first one and and i do think that it was a good move to go a good move like 26 years is such a short lifespan for a ballpark and i hate to see it go i just really wish that they put a roof on the first one I remember like 10 years ago, there was a, I think probably a Bleacher Report slideshow on like, uh, you know, it was like a photo slideshow of attractive fans. And it was like your classic clickbait slideshow was like the 25 hottest fans or whatever. And I always wanted to do the 25 hottest fans and just have it be Texas Rangers (laughs) fans like, like in puddles. (laughs) You said Rugnet Odor, what is his kind of place in Texas lore? He is such a an unusual player in so many ways, just like a completely modern and unique profile as a hitter and uh, as a, you know, as a value maker when he is valuable and often he's not. So is he like beloved or despised among Texas fans? What will he be remembered for and how controversial is he? So the best comparison I have is the New York City Police Department (laughs) in that right after 9-11, you know, you just saw the the bravery of those guys, and and they were they were national heroes. You saw people wearing NYPD caps. They were they were basically like America's favorite team of cops. And then in the twenty years since, you've seen so many. You know, the stop and frisk happened, and there's been so many videos of them misbehaving. And, and I may I may regret making this comparison because that's a much more serious topic. But now they're kind of in a lot of circles 
reviled and and like how bad do you have to be to go from being the nation's heroes to being somebody that people are skeptical of and like come on man get your get your get your life together Rubnet Odor punched Jose Bautista right in the face and he immediately became a folk hero in Texas and he could have gotten elected governor of the state on that day <laughs> and in the years since Things have not gone as well for him, and I almost hesitate to write about him because I know the comment section is just going to be absolutely toxic. So I don't think he is... Uh, I would say the, the, the greater there are a greater number of Rangers fans who are ready to see him out of town, and there are who still enjoy watching him play. I don't necessarily hold that opinion. I, I am really interested to see what he does this year. He spent the offseason in Miami working with uh, Victor Martinez and Marco Scudero. He's apparently kind of come around and figured out all of this analytics stuff that the hitting coaches are teaching him. I think he does have one more chance this year. And But if he gets off to another cold start, I think that's probably the end of his uh, his reign at second base in Texas. Because you got Nick Solak in the wings just sort of waiting to take over. And Solak is absolutely going to hit the ball. Whether he can play defense or not remains yet to be seen. But yeah, I, I definitely think Odor is, is on his last legs as a... Uh, as somebody that the fans are not going to just start booing every time he comes to the plate if if he doesn't figure it out this year. So I guess violence is the answer in Rugnet Odor's case. If he can't get on base, yeah. just start punching people. Start well, punching so, people. So I mean, I think of him as being, you know, like the worst 30 home run hitter in, in baseball. And so I could imagine him being overrated by a certain segment of the fan base. But I mean, it is like the case that half of his seasons have been pretty, pretty good. And so yeah. like in 2018, he was valuable according to value metrics does he get credit for that when it's there or does the batting average and the strikeouts just overwhelm and do do people actually not give him enough credit it depends on how informed they are i think there are a lot of fans with a short memory so at the end of 2018 they're like okay maybe he'll be all right and then he stunk it up in 2019 and they were ready to run him out of town again so if he's good again in 2020, I think he'll be back to being okay. I, I don't. It's been enough bad seasons now that I don't know that he'll ever. He's going to have to put together two or three really good seasons in a row, I think, to sort of regain that the good to begin back in the good graces of the fans. So, yeah, and I don't know why that is that he doesn't get credit for his good seasons. I think it's just because of the inconsistency. He hasn't been consistently good. So I think people are aware of how Hunter Pence turned his career around with the Rangers last year. He was on the podcast. People know he reinvented his swing. But Danny Santana was maybe even more surprising the season he had, yeah. and he is still with the Rangers, and I don't have as clear a sense in my mind of how that happened. <laughs> so how did that happen? Yeah, we asked him about that, and he said that he had... After his rookie season, he, he put so much pressure on himself to produce that he would just beat himself up after every bat at bat. Every time he made a mistake, he was just really, really down on himself. And so when he was in Atlanta, he started seeing a therapist, and a, the, the guy was basically telling him to stop doing that and helped him to go through breathing exercises, helped him to visualize his plate appearances both before and after the game. So... You know, let, let's say you struck out and it was your fault. You've made a bad swing. Rather than beat yourself up about that, go through and visualize what that pitch was and how you would handle it differently next time. And that gives you some sort of sense of control. Like, okay, next time that happens, I'm going to do this better. And he said that that helped him stay calmer. He's not in the box still thinking about his last two at-bats where he struck out. He is now in the moment and focused on this pitch. And he still struck out a lot last year, but he did have quite a comeback season and and the Rangers see him right now he's the de facto starting center fielder I think they view him probably as more valuable if he's somebody that can maybe play like play seven days a week but maybe in seven positions a week but yeah, I think it was just a matter of 
going to therapy, which is not an answer you probably hear a whole lot, but maybe we should. Mm -hmm. And then I just want to ask about the corner outfielders, too. As a Joey Gallo enthusiast, I was really enjoying last season and was not enjoying the injury that cut it short. So I'm hoping that we will see what we saw from Gallo when he was healthy last year for a full season. Is that realistic? Do you think the changes that he appeared to make will stick? And then... Willie Calhoun is the other guy who was sort of a bright spot for the Rangers offense last year, and you could give them some developmental credit for him, even though he's not entirely homegrown. So what's uh-huh. the outlook for him this year? So for Gallo, if he can stay healthy, I do think that what he did was, I don't know if he's going to have an OPS of over a thousand, but I do think he could be a like super mega star if he stays healthy and if last year was any indication. Uh, for Calhoun, I think it is a really interesting to see how this season goes because last se- last off season, so before the 2019 spring training, he lost like 25 pounds. He stopped playing video games. He stopped, or not completely stopped, but no video games after I think 9 p.m. Oh boy, that that'd be a big he change for me. Completely changed his yeah. <laughs> he completely changed his life, and we were actually just talking to Chris Woodward about it today. Like they they worked together a little bit in in Los Angeles when they were both in the Dodgers system, and Woodward said back then it was. His whole life was just about playing video games and hitting dingers, which sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, that but, sounds ideal to me. <laughs> but uh, he said now he is very dedicated in making this a life change, and he's interested in the day-to-day work that it takes to be a consistent big league player. And he got sent down in camp last year, and it was really a tough moment for him because he went through all this change. He really worked hard in the offseason, felt like he had done everything they asked and still didn't make the team. And um, this year when we talked to him, he's like, man, I am – past all of that I will if they come ask me to work out in the freezing cold and shorts I'm going to do it because when I started following what they asked me to do I started to see the results and I trust them now and so I'm 100% just if they ask me to do it I'm going to do it and I don't know that that's you know there's there, I, I'm just rebellious enough that I'm like oh man they broke your spirit dude <laughs> <laughs> but but I think in his case it probably is going to be really beneficial to him so I I I kind of want to see how that all plays out. I, I think he's going to be a very good, good hitter. The question with him, as it is also with Solak, is will his defense be good enough to make it worth having his bat in the lineup every day? Yeah, so you've written about Solak and you've written about the versatility, the positional flexibility that the Rangers may have this year. So how do you see Solak fitting, if at all? Uh, <laughs> They, they're they going to give him a shot to play center field. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a couple of scouts and evaluators about that that were not in the Rangers organization. <laughs> and to a man, their answer equated to absolutely not. So, But talking to Tony Beasley, and, and Beasley was the one that turned Rugnet Odor in, from a subpar defender at second base into, in 2018, a gold glove finalist. And so he's got he's got some skins on the wall. And he says, look, the raw tools are there as far as speed. All we need to do is teach him how to get a good break on the ball. If he can read the ball off the bat, then there are no bat hops in the outfield. And he's never going to be an above average center fielder. But if he can just be average or even close to average, his bat is going to make up for it. So Tony Beasley thinks it can happen. And if he does, then that will allow them to move Santana around. If he doesn't, then I, I don't know. I you know Todd Frazier's at third base. Maybe they move him to first if Guzman struggles and let Solak go back to third. But... His arm is not, he's not a third baseman's arm. And you can kind of maybe mask that a little bit in center field because you get a running start on a lot of balls. You can put your whole body into it. Third base, there's a lot of situations where you just have to pick it and throw it. And he just does not have the natural arm strength to do that. So 
it's I, I don't know. I don't know where he's going to play. I hope the center field thing works out and that would make everything a lot simpler, but I have skepticism. Oh, and I've got to close with a Jeff Mathis question. So Jeff Mathis's okay. WRC plus last year was two. <laughs> That's not the yeah. start of a longer number. It's just two. And the yeah. Rangers did bring back Chirinos this winter. Is that a reflection of, okay, even despite what Mathis is bringing to us defensively, two is still too low a number? Or does he get credit for, you know, Lynn and Minor and, and pitching turnarounds? Because if people are crediting him with those improvements, then that really does make up for a lot of outs. Yeah. Yeah, probably both. I, I think they realized they couldn't go to another season with him as their main guy. And I think there's some thought that he had been a backup for so long that maybe catching as many games as he did mm-hmm. was what caused him to be tired or yeah, especially in dead the legs or whatever and not be effective. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, there is absolutely the acknowledgement that we can't do this again. But I, I do think he also gets some credit for Minor and Lynn. And so if you have him in there as in a backup role where he's catching one of those guys uh, every week or every start and still helping with the game planning with Torinos and the other guy and uh, you're kind of almost serving as a another like sub pitching bullpen coach type player then maybe that's a good role for him uh, where yeah you can take the hit in your lineup once or twice a week where he's going to go out there and probably go over four but the things that he's doing behind the scenes are helping on the other days when he's not in the game. I think that might be the best possible role for him at this point in his career. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have come to the end and we've got to ask you the prediction question. So, Oh gosh. <laughs> always your favorite. As I recall, yeah. how many wins do you anticipate in 2020? I feel like I always overshoot this every year. Everyone um, does. It's okay. So I'm going to try and be less of a Homer. Uh, let's go. Let's go. 83. All right. So you can follow Levi on Twitter at 32EFUS, and you can read him and listen to him, and you should, at The Athletic DFW. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Levi. Yeah, thanks for having me. That will do it for today and for this week. Thank you for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Brett Mullen, Greg Burton, Alex Stanford, Sean Kivlihan, and Scott Kramer. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. You can contact us. Send us your comments and questions via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Meg and Sam and I will see them. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And hey, what do you know? We got through an entire episode without even talking about sign stealing, but I think I made be bringing you a bonus episode that is exclusively about sign stealing soon so keep an eye out for that and we'll be back to resume the season preview podcast series next week talk to you then drove the night toward my home the place that i was born on the lakeside and as daylight broke i saw the earth the trees had burned down to the ground 